0: It's great to be with you again. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to see uh, dear old friends and it's good to have uh, my cousins, uh, my brother here. Uh, We're having a family reunion this afternoon. Uh, So it's uh, especially uh, fun uh, to be able to be together uh, worshiping the Lord in church and studying His uh, Word together. Uh, I would like you open your Bibles, please, to Revelation uh, chapter 3, if you would. In this day and age in which we send texts to one another, uh, send emails, uh, the concept of a letter uh, has fallen on uh, hard times. It's seldom that we get personal written letters through the mail. And When I was uh, dating the young lady who's now my wife, uh, we were on vacation in Yosemite. She was in Bolivia, South America. Uh, She lived there with missionary parents and uh, we would send letters over the summer back and forth. Uh, We were receiving letters from her during that week uh, to the post office at Yosemite camping there. Uh, You can send it uh, to the post office and just uh, general delivery and go and say, I'm Ken Daughters, do I have a letter? They look it up and, and sure enough, I can get a letter. One particular day, I knew it was time for a letter to arrive, but I was on top of Half Dome and I was trying to time, you know, when will the post office close and how much time do I have? And I asked my parents, do you mind if I run ahead? And I was so excited to possibly get a letter. I ended up running the entire distance all the way down uh, to catch a tram and get to the post office in time. And I got there and she had sent me a letter and everything was perfect. When I was in school and would turn in a paper, there were some profs uh, that would uh, just write a letter grade on it and not say what they appreciated about the paper or what they disliked about the paper. Uh, But there were profs uh, who would write entire treatises at the uh, the back of the paper. They would underline the portions they'd like, they'd write in the columns, they'd write a a whole uh, explanation of ways in which I could improve or what they appreciated. Those were the prophets I greatly enjoyed because they evaluated what they thought of what it was I was doing. And here in Revelation chapter 3, we're in a section in which Jesus himself is writing letters to individual churches. These are genuine historical churches that are somewhat representative of the kinds of churches that uh, we're going to have throughout this age and uh, common uh, problems that they have uh, that we still have today in our churches. And to hear Jesus write such a focused personal letter uh, causes us to say, uh, this is very interesting. What would He say about us? It would be interesting. if through an apostle like John, who was the one who was receiving this revelation, we were to to receive from the Lord Himself an evaluation of what He thought about what we were doing. And we would wonder, what would He say about us? Would He compliment some of the things that we're doing well? Would He critique some of the things that we needed to improve? I wonder where we would stand. One of the things I notice as I read through these seven letters is the culture of that city had much more effect on the church in that city than we realize. And it causes me to wonder, uh, has American culture or particularly even Southern California culture affected our churches in ways in which we're not even very perceptive to be able to see? I think this letter in Revelation 3.14, the letter to the church at Laodicea, is particularly helpful and insightful when we try to understand common problems that we in our modern churches face today. I'm reading from Revelation 3, beginning with verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You remember in school when you all took the same exam and, and you were uh, comparing with your friends to say, What'd you get? What'd you get? You know, show me your paper. I want to know what your grade was because you want to say to yourself, Well, at least I did better than my friends. If you read all seven letters, there's not even a commendation in this letter. There is nothing that he says that they're doing well. And in fact, this is one of the harshest of the letters. And it causes one to say, you know, I think I just failed, I I think I'd have to retake the test. I might have to take the whole class over again. What am I doing wrong? Well, a lot of the imagery that he uses to critique them is actually based on the pride that they have about their city. And so it's somewhat useful to understand what was happening in Laodicea for you to understand how he critiques the church. (coughs) These seven churches are all in uh, Central Asia Minor, what we would call today modern Turkey. And this city, Laodicea, was founded by Antiochus II, named after his wife. That's kind of nice uh, to name a city after your wife. It was in a Lycus River Valley in Southwest Phrygia, a juncture of three important trade routes. 100 miles east or inland from Ephesus that was on the sea, 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. The two nearest cities were Hierapolis, kind of like Palm Springs in the sense that it had spas and the like, about six miles to the north, and Colossae, the city that you know from another letter written by Paul to the church there at Colossae, 10 miles east up the Lycast, uh, Grant glen. It was built on a plateau up high, several hundred feet above uh, the terrain, uh, with hills surrounding it for natural fortification. So when Antiochus was picking the place to build the city. He picked it so it would be defensible, the hills around, up high on a plateau, uh, rivers going through. It seemed like an ideal spot. Unfortunately, however, he had not lived there to know what happened to the rivers? The Lycus River would dry up. Sounds a little bit like Southern California. The Meander River was too dirty. And so they soon discovered after they built the city, they needed to import water. Yesterday, we were talking about how much rain Texas is getting, enough to cover the entire state eight eight inches deep. Uh, We know that we import oil from Texas. There's a pipeline that goes uh, clear from Houston all the way to Colton. We're thinking like, well, you could use that same right away just to pump water this direction. That would be helpful. Well, thankfully, they didn't have to go quite as far as Texas to California. Uh, They had clean, clear, fresh water uh, five miles south. And so they built an aqueduct. And if you go there today, you can see the ruins and you can still see uh, the high aqueducts covering uh, the, the transfer of water across the ravines, and then stone barrel pipes as you get nearer uh, to Laodicea itself. Uh, the stones are about three feet by three feet, uh, square in a sense, with a hollowed tube through it and they put them end to end and let the water flow. Uh, If you're a plumber, you realize this, water always flows downhill, so all you have to do is angle the pipe those five miles, and what do you know, it runs into the city. However, if you are used to defending cities from attack, and they built the city here in a way which they thought it was going to be defensible, they began to realize it won't be defensible, because if anyone wants to besiege our city, all they have to do is cut off our water supply, and we're done for. Hence, the city of Laodicea decided we can't afford to ever be attacked. So they decided the best way not to be attacked was to develop an attitude of compromise, tolerance, and broad-mindedness toward everyone else around them so that no one would ever want to attack them. I learned that as a child playing the game Risk. Uh, my friends and I used to enjoy playing that game over and over again. And it's still sometimes at uh, family parties uh, we'll get out a risk game. It's a world conquest game. You try to uh, cover every territory on the board. You soon find out if you're very aggressive and make enemies by attacking them, the, they're gonna attack you back. And the more you attack and get attacked back, the weaker and weaker you become. It's better to be somewhere in the world like Asia that nobody particularly wants. And consequently, Just sit there quietly and get stronger and stronger and stronger until everybody else is so weak you can take over the world. Just don't get attacked. That's what Laodicea thought. They thought, well, let's try to be friends with everyone. Now, if you grew up in a city like that, where the culture was, be tolerant, be broad-minded, what would that do to the theology that you held as a church. You see, the culture of the city was leaking into the church, and it made everyone very permissive. Does it sound like America today? Does it sound like California today? Notice in a very stern way, he approaches them saying the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this about you. First, you can't hide from me. I know what you do. I know your deeds. And then secondly, he describes their deeds in terms of their water supply. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and he means this as a metaphor of their level of spiritual fervor. You'll see that in verse 19 where he says that they lack spiritual fervor. He says, you remind me frankly of your water supply and you make me nauseous. Uh, I don't know if you've been to camps where there's something terribly wrong with the water. I speak at a lot of camps and I go to all over the country and it's a common problem to have rust in the pipes. Have you ever showered with orange water? It's it's very interesting. You don't want to drink it particularly. And so many a camp, I discover first of all, my cell phone won't work, there's no reception. And then secondly, import water. Bring gallons of drinking water because their water is likely full of impurities. These stone barrel pipes, I said they're extant. You can see some of them still today. They're supposed to be about this wide in diameter. They're actually about this wide still because this much of it, all around the edge of it, is calcium carbonate. It had so many impurities. We would call it hard water, but hard water on steroids, (coughs) that it dropped its load on the way, and you can see the problem with it. No one wanted to drink Laodicea's water. Now, they needed that water because they didn't have the good river supplies. But where you have just a few miles away Hierapolis that uh, had medicinal waters with spas and the like, you can still see the cascading waters coming across the rocks. It's beautiful. It'd be like Palm Springs. Or you have Colossae with fresh, clean water. It'd be like Arrowhead water taken right at the source. You would say, like, well, I, that would be good. I could be Hierapolis or I could be Colossae. but no, I'm Laodicea and I have water that makes the visitors sick. And Jesus said, I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold, but frankly, you remind me of your water supply. Regarding your spiritual fervor, you're just Nauseating. You become so complacent. You develop such a respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity that you stand for nothing. You're half-hearted. You've gotten flabby spiritually. Later, in verse 19, he'll say the remedy is to repent. Now. To tell a person they need to repent means they're headed in the wrong direction. And that's offensive, that hurts. Uh, It doesn't sound pleasant to be told, you're not focused and you're not headed in the right direction, you are listless spiritually. But it's exactly what we need to hear. And so many of us uh, in our churches in America today have become useless and ineffective for our Lord because we don't have the level of spiritual fervency that we should have. We have become anemic spiritually. And He calls on us to recognize our problem and come back to Him as we saw Him say, please let me in. It's as if I'm standing at the door and knocking. And it's as if you've locked me out of your life. Hard words for us to think about. The second way in which he evaluates them is regarding uh, the depth of their spirituality. He says in verse 17, because you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And you don't know That you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That makes no sense unless we know what the situation was there in Laodicea. It became a very prosperous, very successful commercial banking center. In fact, when the earthquake occurred in 60 AD and Rome offered funds to help them rebuild the city, they said, no, thank you we're happy to rebuild it ourselves. And they rebuilt it with their own funds and then put little plaques on the walls to say whose money it was used to finance the rebuilding. In fact, you can read uh, in the Roman archives about Laodicea refusing aid to rebuild after the earthquake. They were proud of their banking center. They also uh, had a textile industry uh, that was completely unique. There was only one other place in Spain, uh, where they had black sheep with a glossy, silky wool. Uh, So uh, they made clothing out of it. They made carpets out of it. In fact, they even later changed the name of the city to the name of Uh, the textile industry uh, at the Council of Nicaea when it lists uh, all the people who came to the council. uh, The city of Laodicea is named after their famous glossy black wool. they were also famous for their medical center. Uh, They actually invented the Phrygian eye salve that's mentioned by Galen and by Aristotle. Uh, They used the medicinal properties of uh, the uh, water and uh, used it to make uh, a medical school. So they were prosperous, but it led them to a state of ease that caused them to be completely self-reliant. I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody else. You might say, well, what's wrong with that? that that's American to be self-reliant, to be an individual, uh, to stand for yourself. Well, yeah, that's... That's Laodicean and it's American, but it's not very helpful spiritually when you must rely on Jesus and you must admit that I can't do this myself and that you must turn to him for the empowerment uh, to live in a manner that pleases him. Uh, To become complacent, to become self-reliant are two of the worst possible things that can happen to you spiritually. And it's a remedy that has caused the Laodicean church to become completely useless and ineffective as far as the Lord is concerned. So when he says, because you say I'm rich and wealthy and have need of nothing and don't know that you are wretched and miserable, and can you recognize this, poor, blind, and naked, he takes their three most proud aspects of their city and says, It's as if the emperor is wearing no clothes. You don't realize how you're bankrupt spiritually. Uh, You are blind spiritually. Uh, You are naked spiritually. You have nothing to stand on. If you think of Hollywood spirituality, I think you would say you can see that there's nothing to it. It means nothing. It's just uh, a philosophy or a way of life. The celebrities uh, in Hollywood uh, have bought into a religion that L. Ron Hubbard at a cocktail party boasted that he could create a religion that people would actually believe. And he did. And they believe it. And you say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. If you don't know much about that religion, I invite you to Google Scientology and actually listen to what it is they believe and how much money you have to pay to get the aliens out of you. These ones from outer space have actually taken you over. It's the most amazing story. We have to go back to the Word of God and what the Lord says about Himself and what the truth is rather than allowing our society to form our worldview and our thoughts about what is true. His advice then in verse 18 is to say, you need to exchange your value system. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, in white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and the eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. He says, what you have doesn't work as far as relationship with me. You may feel like you can buy your way into anything, but it doesn't work as far as relationship with me is concerned. Do you remember the rich man in Lazarus when he died that night and was in torment and he saw Lazarus in comfort and he says, you know, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And the word comes to him, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. So you can be rich in this life, but it doesn't help as far as your relationship with God. You need riches as far as God gives us, spiritual riches. Been to another country where your money doesn't work? Sometimes when I travel around briefly in countries, I try not to exchange any money. And I've learned that the most important phrase to learn in any language is, my friend will pay. Or times, uh, you know, even going to Canada, I can't figure out the money. I'm trying to buy a donut and coffee, and I'm in a coffee shop with these Canadian coins that make no sense, and I just hold out a handful of them and say, like, take whatever you want. I don't know how this money works. (laughs) He says, you need righteousness that comes from me, not what you can control through your own abilities. How do you buy something if you have nothing to buy it with? In Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says, Buy wine and milk without money and without price. He has done the buying for us. Christ has purchased our redemption with his own blood, 2 Peter 1.9. He has made provision and he has offered it to us free if we will humble ourselves. And admit that we are wrong and he is right, and come to him in faith and believe that Christ's work on the cross has actually provided the means by which God can forgive us of our sins and that we can have our sins forgiven and have eternal life. So he says, Those whom I love, verse 19, I reprove and discipline therefore, be zealous and repent." Carol and I are parents of five kids, and uh, now we have four grandchildren, and so it's very interesting for us uh, to watch how kids are reared, in fact, especially interesting to watch how our kids rear their own kids. It's interesting in, in generational differences. Uh, my parents had seven kids, I was the sixth of seven. Uh, and. They were free-range parents. It was like we were on our own. We walked to school ourselves. We didn't need to be driven and dropped off or anything. And when we got out of school and came home, they basically shoot us out of the house, you know, come back when the street lights come on, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Go out and play. We were on our own. So if we had any problems at school, mom didn't come talk to the principal or the guidance counselor or anything, we took care of all that ourselves. So it was an interesting way to watch how we were reared compared to the way Carol and I reared our kids. We were helicopter parents. You know, if there was one little thing wrong, zoom, we came in and dropped in and, and, and solved the problem for them. And I, I think I would repent from that way if I was going to redo it again because. Uh, so often it's like, oh, the, the guidance counselor won't give you an appointment. I'll solve that. I'll be there in five minutes. And you know, I'm in the office, and I'm saying, you'll talk to us now. And they're like, oh, yes, we will. You know? And it's like, it's funny if a parent shows up. Suddenly, the child's problems can get solved. Recently, my son, who just graduated from high school this last week, Uh, had a bunch of absences. I was getting letters at home saying, I don't know if your son's going to graduate or not because he's got all these absences. And so I say to him, son, you have these absences, you want to explain yourself? You know, were you gone or what were you doing? He said, oh, well, I was doing a project for another teacher from another class and then that teacher has to sign the paperwork and the paperwork's complicated and yes, I know about it, yes, I'm taking care of it. And so I tried not to be a helicopter parent. I said, okay, well, you take care of it. A Couple days later, I'd say, well, is it taken care of yet? Well, you see, they filled out the paperwork, but it went to the office and the office didn't accept it. And so I have to go back to the teacher again and get the right paperwork and the right signatures. It's a real long process. Finally, about two weeks later, he got all soft and he actually graduated this year, which is very, very nice and very exciting. And you can actually see the, yes, you don't have to always be a helicopter parent. You can actually Let them grow up on their own and find out how to solve problems all by themselves. Listen to how he says we should be responsive to his discipline. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, meaning that my discipline comes out of love, not because I'm angry, not because I'm uh, having any kind of retribution particularly. I'm seeking what's best for you out of your love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Here's my advice. Be zealous. That's the greatest problem they have is they're completely apathetic, uh, completely anemic spiritually. Regain the spiritual fervor that you had before, and that will take repentance. Repent. Repent actually means to turn and go the other way. It means you're headed completely in the wrong direction. And he says, this lukewarmness is because you have a lack of zeal, and the problem is you're refusing to repent. He'll spit you out. If you have the King James, it's not quite as careful in what it says there. It actually says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, He says... You won't have relationship with me unless you are zealous and repent. If you are a believer who has just slipped into the culture of your day, come back to me. But because this is a fully formed church, there's a mixture of all kinds of people in it. There are genuine believers and there are people who are in the church, active in the church, who may think they're saved when they're not. And they've got a much deeper spiritual problem in the sense they've been deluding themselves all along thinking they have a relationship with them when they don't. And he says, it's necessary therefore uh, that in a singular decisive act you decide I'm not going to continue this any longer. I will turn and go the other direction. I'll, I'll admit I'm wrong. I'll admit you're right. And I will seek from you the spiritual riches that you can offer me, I'll allow you to empower me, I'll allow you to guide me, I will seek to please you rather than pleasing myself." The zeal then is expressed as something that should be habitual as a description of our life for the rest of our lives. It's not just the week that we return from Verdugo Pines that we're supposed to be zealous or the week after Yosemite that we're zealous. No, we're supposed to be yet zealous. 365 days a year. We're supposed to be always on fire for the Lord, always excited about the things of the Lord. And in his invitation in verse 20, he says, will you let me in? It's as if the church itself is functioning with the door closed and locked and the person that they're supposed to be worshiping and honoring, the person that they're supposed to be glorifying is actually locked outside. Does that make any sense at all you know sometimes it's refreshing for us to ask ourselves what if we were to evaluate ourselves top to bottom businesses do that sometimes they'll say let's rethink the whole thing and say, are we going the right direction? are we doing what we want to do if, are we following our mission statement and it would be somewhat useful I think for a church to do a 360-degree evaluation or a top-to-bottom evaluation to say, is Christ the center of all that we're doing? Is He the one we really love? Is He the one we are honoring? Or is there in any sense that we've pushed Him to the outside and that He is not where He should be in our lives? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me." Sometimes we pull this verse completely out of context and use it in evangelistic uh, conversations, and in a sense it could be used evangelistically, but it's written to members of a church, whether they're saved or unsaved, or whether they're uh, on fire or backslidden. Uh, It's written to members of a church, and it's more about relationship as far as being involved in the church. But what's interesting is the call is specifically to individuals. It's not corporately as a church turning to repent, it's on an individual basis that we make the decisions to repent. Now, it's true, we could influence each other if, if one of us realizes we've been heading the wrong direction and we we repent and become excited about the things of the Lord and are now on fire. Those people are contagious. They, they spread enthusiasm. Uh, they get all excited about things and people are, are shaken up a bit. In fact, some people get nervous around excited people. They're saying like, can you calm down, please? You're, you're making me feel guilty. But he asks on an individual basis, I'm standing at the door and knock. Will you come open the door? Imagine that visually, as if I'm up here talking, and I'm way off, and you're hearing someone pounding on the door, and it's as if no one hears the knock, and no one gets up, and and people start looking at each other, and they're saying, like, well, is anybody going to get up and let that person in? Somebody has to start. Sometimes when I'm talking to married couples about a marriage that has gone the wrong direction, and they both keep pointing their finger at each other and saying, like, well, if she would change, everything would be fine. And she's saying, well, if he would change, everything would be fine. And you end up at this impasse where no one is willing to make the first step. I then say to the husband, you're the husband. You're the leader. You're going to have to be the one who starts and leads by repenting and by changing. And I think she'll follow. It's a hard thing for someone to be first. And yet this is how churches revive. This is how whole movements revive. It starts individually. It starts with a person recognizing I've been heading the wrong direction. I need the Lord in my life. I need to be zealous. I have been complacent all along. I will change. I'll get up and I'll go open the door. And he says, I will come in to him. It's it's very precise there. It doesn't mean spatially like he enters the person's uh, thorax or something like that. What he's talking about is he's coming into the room and he wants to have a meal. He wants to sit down and dine in fellowship with us. Sometimes there's been problems where I've been asked, you know, can we go out to dinner? Can we talk about this? I can't enjoy meals when we're talking about something that is really sad and grievous and there is no good solution. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous to try to have a nice meal over a problem. Let's just meet in somebody's office instead of trying to have a nice meal. Because meals mean fellowship. Meals mean we're one with each other. Meals mean we're going to enjoy this together. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants to have a meal with us. And the thought is, are we up for that? Would we enjoy that? Would we enjoy sitting down with Jesus? Sometimes uh, kids in school will be asked, if you could meet anyone, who would you like to meet? And usually it's a celebrity or a famous politician or a famous author or someone like that. If you could have a meal with anyone, who would you have it with and what would you talk about? Have you ever imagined in in your own mind, if I sat down with Jesus, what would the conversation be like? This is actually a healthy idea, because Jesus himself actually wrote this to a church and said, I would love it if you'd have me over for dinner. Would you sit down with me, and we'd enjoy each other? Now, Jesus is willing to have dinner with more people than we would be willing to have dinner with. Like, Remember when he was on earth and he was having dinner with sinners and some of the Pharisees were getting upset at that and saying like, aren't you getting tainted by this? And he would say, who needs a doctor but sick people? Doctors go to sick people. That's why I'm meeting with these people. He is willing if we will invite him in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I want to come in. I want to sit down and have dinner with you, but it's going to take an invitation. Uh, The invitation is generally to the church as as a whole, and the church as a whole uh, will be affected, but it is individuals who open this door in a sense. Merely professing believers are going to have to repent and turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Backside believers are going to have to renew their fellowship with Him in order to be able to have this meal. It's a rough letter. It's a hard letter to read. It's an embarrassing letter. If someone was reading this letter, if it was written to me particularly, and they were reading my mail, I'd be embarrassed. I'd say like, I didn't know. I wasn't paying attention. I'm wrong. And though it didn't have a commendation at the beginning like many of the other letters did, it does have, I think, the best, clearest reward. And he says, if you will open to me, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Second Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure we shall also reign with him. There is no greater reward, no higher dignity than to have Jesus say, come sit with me and rule and reign with me in my kingdom. That's the offer. Welcome me in fellowship, and I will have fellowship with you. Make me first, and you will rule And reign with me. And much like the other letters, he ends with He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Holy Spirit is speaking to each of us as individuals right now. And we can be closed minded and say, I'm not paying attention, or we can spiritually open our ears and allow the Lord to have his way with us. And he says, This is not just for the church of Laodicea, this is to the church's plural. All of us can learn from what I'm writing to this church. We have a choice of being smug and complacent and self-reliant or we can answer his call to be zealous and repent and seek our spiritual assets from him. Would you pray with me and open your heart to the Lord and welcome him into fellowship with you? Father, we would ask, the ways in which our culture, our family practices, our worldview have affected us much like it affected this church at Laodicea. We pray that You would help us to see the error of our ways. Perhaps we have been proud of ourselves and our accomplishments and actually have been completely self-sufficient, become complacent spiritually, and become anemic. You've called on us to be zealous and repent, we do. We admit our faults before you and we seek your fellowship and approval. Father, for those who do not know you personally through your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray that by the Spirit, you would convict them of their sins, help them to see their sin before you, help them to repent of this sin and welcome your Son into their lives as they seek forgiveness of their sins and they believe that your Son is our God and our Savior who died on the cross to pay for our sins. We pray that as we trust in you and believe in you, that you'd make us whole and you would allow us to be pleasing to you and that we would receive this reward of being with you and your Son forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name.